It's Friday, February 1st, 2013. Welcome to Episode 9 of Insert Content Here. Insert Content Here. Words intentionally unclear. Insert Content Here. Hi, I'm Jeff Eaton, a senior architect and a general content-obsessed guy here at Lullabot. Every episode, I get together with interesting folks from the world of digital content, and we talk about what's happening and the lessons they're learning, and uh, we call it Insert Content Here. Today, our guest is Greg Dunlap, a.k.a. Hey Rocker in the Drupal community and on Twitter and I'm sure lots of other places online. Uh, he's got a, a really awesome story to past from uh, covering everything from uh, pinball machine programming to uh, years in the newspaper industry and a bunch of experience then as a senior uh, Drupal developer and architect. And uh, now he's also um, an initiative lead for version 8 of the Drupal core project. He's uh, been all over the place and has done a lot of really interesting things and uh, today we get to talk to him uh welcome to the show it's it's great to have you here thanks i'm very excited as well to be on to finally be on a lullabot podcast although technically i guess this isn't a lullabot podcast or whatever it is. i don't it's, know it's part, part of the uh the lullabot family of podcasts the lullabot audio content series yes yes that's it we haven't quite come up with what our like umbrella corporation's name should be but uh Branding is hard. Blue Marine Synergistics. I think that's that's what we're working with. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, we, we've actually known each other for uh, for quite a few years now. Um, I think b- before we dive too deep in, I'm I'm really curious if we can talk a little bit like about your past, not necessarily the dark past, um, right? But like, h- how did you get involved in in the publishing world? Um, in college, I was actually a journalism major. Um, it's actually a photojournalism major technically and I had a fine art photography minor um, and I got really interested in journalism I got really interested in uh, the history of journalism I, uh, took a, I t- actually learned a lot about journalism from my political science classes where we would do things like discuss the Kennedy-Nixon debates and talk about Everett R. Murrow and his impact on politics and the McCarthy hearings and things like that and really into uh, photographers and journalism uh, the classic Magnum photographers like Cartier-Bresson and and Elliot Erwitt and stuff like that. And and um, as I was graduating from college and looking at a future in the um, newspaper industry, I was not seeing a lot of stuff there that excited me. And uh, I, it was it was already the newspaper industry was already in decline. I graduated from college in 1991 and. Uh, CNN and USA Today were already starting to take their toll on the U.S. on the uh, newspaper industry even way back then, uh, and and it's been in decline ever since the internet only you know pushed it off the cliff. But uh, so I kind of wandered around trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life because I didn't see a lot of the exciting and interesting journalism I wanted happening at the newspapers and the people who had graduated before me were already kind of bitter because we all come out of college being very (laughs) idealistic about, you know, changing the world through journalism and all of this kind of stuff. And obviously the real world's not like that. And so, um, I also graduated in 1991, which was horrible recession time. So I, I, um, ended up getting into computers at that time as the internet was coming up. I had considered a computer science major when I was in college but at the time, it wasn't very fun or interesting. You would go to work at a bank or an insurance company or something, right? Hey, um, hey, banks can be fun. 
Um, and I didn't really feel like being locked in the basement programming COBOL all day long. And so I, um, I got a job at a real estate newspaper, which was my first job out of college. And I was doing ad design. And this guy there was like, you seem to be really interested in computers. And I've got this old Paradox or DOS database that I want to convert for par- to Paradox for Windows. <laughs> and would you like to do that? And I'm like, ah, sure. Why not? Right. And so that was my first database design and programming. That, that happens to so many people. I know. And it's really interesting because in the Drupal community, like so many people got into it just because they were interested in making things happen on the internet or because they were at a company that needed some help and they were the only people who cared enough to figure it out and stuff like this. That was definitely the case for me as well. And as I started getting more and more into what could happen on the internet and especially exposing data sets and big data sets on the internet, I started getting more and more into it. And, and that all kind of took a detour for a while as I, as I tried to make a living in the pinball and slot machine industry and then through the internet bust and all of that. And, and I was freelancing and really hating it. This is, you know, 20 years later or something, I was looking for jobs and there was a job at the Seattle times. And, you know, at this point, this, the, you know, this is, this is somewhere around, you know, 2005 or 2006 or something like that. And, and, you know, the newspaper industry is, while it's not in the dire straits, it is now, um, the signs of trouble were already beginning. Inside of the like the pure web world, I think the perception of the newspaper industry's decline basically consists of, you know, newspapers, 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 Craigslist, and then everything, yeah. and then the bottom dropped out. But I mean, it sounds like you know you're describing ha- they were putting those pressures on way before the web hit. Oh yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, that decline was slow and gradual until you know the until the web hit. You know, the web was popular for years and years before Craigslist got popular, right? I mean, and the writing has been on the wall for a long time. And the newspaper industry's response to all of these changes has not been to retool or to change their product at all. It has been to sort of sort of curl up on itself and go into defensive mode and 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 dig in the trenches. You know, at the time when I was considering this job, a lot of my friends were like, why would you want to go into that industry? They're dead and stuff like this. But, you know, I had a real I still had that idealistic viewpoint of what journalism means in the modern society and, and the role that it plays in, in government transparency and investigation and stuff like this. And I thought the problems to be solved there were really fascinating. And I thought that was something I would be really excited to be a part of. So I joined the Seattle Times then in their new media department. Uh, which was the department they had that was running all their web properties. That's actually where we first met because you guys were working on a Drupal-related project, and uh, we ended up talking to you about some of that stuff. And we just—I think—we just kept in touch, at least you know, for for quite a while after that. Yeah, I mean, uh, we had like many, you know, like many companies in general uh, that were moving to the web at the time. They sort of grew their sites organically. They didn't really know what they were getting into. Um, and they ran them for a few years and then realized that their hodgepodge of 15 different content management systems that all ran one site and didn't talk to each (laughs) other, know about each other, wasn't really going to scale or move into the modern world. Right. But that also gave them an opportunity to figure out what they wanted to do and what the problems they wanted to solve were. And so we were in the process of, of that conversion of taking this sort of homegrown organic system and turning it into a strong, uh, well-designed Drupal site. 
I actually thought it was really interesting because like one, I, I distinctly remember one of the conversations we got into at the time. At the time, it felt like an edge case requirements conversation, but it's the kind of thing that's turned into a very like central question about a lot of news and, and periodical publication. It was how do you capture the concept of like a front page for a particular day on a newspaper when you're transitioning towards more of like a river of news, the technical infrastructure that people are working with, you know, CMSs and stuff like that really encourage a sort of, you know, approach where people are just firing off articles and they go live and that's what's hot. But the the concept of like a curated view of what this day's news is, you know, trying to figure out how to draw that line just on a purely technical basis was one of the things that we talked about. But it feels like that that's a big part of what content strategy deals with at a why, what are we trying to accomplish and why are we doing it level? It's totally true. And it's really interesting because when we were going through this transition, I was working with a guy named uh, Gary Love, who was a really, really smart, interesting new media guy. He had dev chops, so he understood um, that world. But he was also trained in uh, media, in, formerly in media. He had a communications major from Evergreen College. Um, he, was, he was a super, super smart guy. And me and him hit it off right away. Um, because we were both interested in the big picture, not just our little niche of it. And so we, when we started putting together this site, one of the things that we did are a lot of the things that you still do today. We started um, doing like card sorts and things like that. Um, and a lot of the other devs were really not interested in this because they figured it didn't have anything to do with them. Um, but um, the fact of the matter is that those kinds of decisions, how you organize your hierarchy – how you capture metadata and what metadata you want to use and how and how you're going to take that metadata and display it on the page ties into architecture and system design at, at a very base level. In a CMS like Drupal, it's just as important as like data modeling is in a traditional application. And tra- traditionally, data modeling is the very first thing you do in any application. And you can't data model if you don't know what data you're modeling. <laughs> And it's really interesting to me how many devs view all of these content discussions as something that's so, that's somebody else's problem, and that was definitely true at the Seattle Times. But I got really into it. I was really interested. I was really interested in hearing from the editorial staff what their pain points were, the kind of things that they wanted to do, like the people who actually had to sit down and write and enter articles, and what they couldn't do today that they wanted to be able to do, and and all of these kinds of things, and it, and it all tied together with um, what the business needs were in terms of how to display content on pages, how we wanted to reuse content between different areas of the site, both on a day-to-day basis, but midstream when important things happened and all of that kind of stuff. This is one of the things that I really find fascinating. It's like there's there's so many of these different themes that run through so many different, you know, e- even across industries. I got the content strategy bug a couple of years ago, not because, you know, I realized, hey, this is awesome as a new field or discipline. It was just sort of like, oh, that's what people are calling this now. And they've got a point to rally around. Right. You know, how aware someone was of, you know, the fact that this was a real concrete kind of discipline was was sort of varied a lot. But it, it's always been there. 
And it's interesting because one of the reasons that it's always so painful in these dev projects is that very reason is very because the devs think it's not their problem until it lands on their desk. I don't think it's just exclusive to developers. I mean, I think it seems like there's a bunch of different parties involved. There's the actual content production people. There's, you know, business stakeholders who are making decisions at a pretty high level. There's developers who implement stuff. There's designers who, on large projects, are often are often brought in from a completely different agency, and and they have you know a different approach to a lot of these things. And how aware each different party is of you know the importance that those fundamental content assets play, and how that how it affects the workflow, and the fact that these decisions aren't happening in isolated design silos or development silos or production silos, you know, that that can have a big impact. It totally can. Uh, You know, the most successful projects that I've worked on in recent years have been the ones where they exactly don't happen in design silos. Like one of the traditional things you see, especially as you start working on bigger projects, is that a client comes to you and they've got a deck. The designs have already been done because they, they, they've got a design firm that they work with that's familiar with their brands and things like this. But um, a lot of times, you know, especially if these people come from a print background or something, they're not really familiar with how content is arranged or displayed in a, in a CMS type of thing. And getting involved in that early on, getting everybody involved is a good thing. And it's not so much early on. It's more about everybody putting their own requirements and priorities on the table and then working them out together than it is about saying, you know, oh, I need to get involved early because otherwise these other guys are going to screw me, right? Yeah, Uh, it's not like Team X, they're the problem. If they just get with it, then we'd all be able to, you know, nail down these projects easy. It's, It's like every party involved has to be willing to at least speak the language of the other parties at the table. Yeah, and and I mean, um, content strategy is a big part of like just the reason for doing a site or what are you trying to accomplish? Why are we making this website? Right, exactly. And I mean, a lot of people talk about, you know, oh, monetization, blah, 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 and ad hits and stuff like that. And that's all fine. And it's certainly a part of that conversation. But I mean, for these content-oriented sites, it's like, it's always like surprising to me how little time they spend thinking about like, you know, what do our consumers want to read? You know, (laughs) I mean, and you know, how, what is our best way to get that to people? Um, How can we make sure that they can find the things that they want? The findability thing happens more, but, um, but I mean, even that a lot of time it comes in the context of SEO and stuff like this. It's especially interesting to me because there's a couple of, clients that we've worked with, you know, over the past couple of years that have, they work in industries where producing timely content, even minute turnaround on certain things can make a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, I find it really interesting that from a developer's perspective, it's, you know, well, sure, we'll just throw up, you know, input forms that are basically, you know, a direct window onto the database structure of the CMS. And from a design perspective, it's like, ah, sure, we'll make photo heavy treatments and, you know, pull quotes scattered arbitrarily around the page where we think they look nice and stuff like that. And, you know, sure, you know, the, the editors will, you know, they'll, they'll put that stuff together when a new story comes out. But that's a really, really heavy load for those, you know, for that editorial staff to pull in a lot of situations. Oh, it really is, especially when, when for instance, you may have um, a bunch of, you know, f- say fields that are required for specific things to happen, right? Because then ah, it's yes. not just... Because then it's not just stuff that they can skip. It's stuff that they have to figure out what to enter in there, right? And Here's the field you have to populate correctly or everything explodes on the mobile browser. 
Right, exactly. That's exactly the kind of thing that happens a lot, you know, um, rather than making everything as flexible as possible. And obviously, there's a lot of push and pull in there. And that's, again, the priorities being determined up front with everybody at the table. Yeah. Right. Because if you don't have a representative of the people who are entering the content along with the developer and along with the person who has to curate the content and the people who are designing and the business person, too, these priorities can't all come together and be judged equally. Yeah, Karen McGrain has said that a couple of times. It's like if if you don't actually have the people who are working with the content at the table in those conversations, it doesn't matter how it plays out. You're going to be essentially leaving money on the table with your project, either because you've got to revisit stuff that you you know could have built correctly the first time around, or they're just not going to be able to produce content as efficiently and effectively as you would like them to be able to. And it's shocking how often those people are left out of these discussions. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean. I, mean, I, I shouldn't laugh, but, you know, yeah, it, 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 it's true. It is, and we spend all of this time on user testing and A-B testing of the people actually using the site and stuff like that, but, like, so little time, like, putting it in front of the time, in, in front of the people who actually have to enter it on a day-to-day basis, who have to actually have to work with the back end and the admin on a day-to-day basis. And, and so many times uh, ignoring that, it leads to inefficiencies that you could have caught if you had put them in front of them because you don't understand their day-to-day work, what their life is like, the kind of things they have to do on a day-to-day basis, right? Um, Like when I was working at the Times, we found out that there was this incredibly convoluted procedure that uh, they had to go to in order to be able to use, use data from one of the other sites and pull it in. And it involved like going by hand in the browser to an RSS feed and copying the text and removing the XML <laughs> and then then taking the links to the images, going to them in the browser, downloading them by hand, adding them back into the HTML. You know, it was it was crazy and it was totally insane. And, you know, as soon as I found out about that, it took me a day to write a Drupal page, which did all of that, downloaded all that content by hand, stripped it. And, you know, gave it some light formatting and put it into a node for them. And sure, they still had to do some cleanup for it. But it's like all of that manual time-wasting stuff could go away. It's like increased, you know, the efficiency and the time that they can spend on stuff that they actually have to use their brains is, was amazing. But, you know, even, even their boss didn't even really realize how much that was going on. It's the kind of thing that you can't figure out until you really get to those people. On it. Well, that, that's actually really interesting because, like, I mean, on the WWE project, we, we worked with that. They firehose lots of content out, and they've got a team of, I think, 15 people who just constantly are just, they're the content team for the site, and they keep it updated. But one of the people that was just spectacular to work with through the whole project um, was a guy named Josh, and he had been there for years. He had just become the guy who always talked to the content team. But what happened was over the course of like five years, he'd become this amazing wealth of knowledge about what the actual day-to-day, hour-to-hour frustrations and needs of the entire content team were. And a lot of the things that he was able to, you know, to bring to the surface were those kinds of things. You know, not, oh, we need to re-architect the content creation process and we need new, incredibly user-friendly and attractive tools. It was things like every Tuesday night X happens and, you know, the team has to go and do a fire drill for two hours getting, you know, all these 15 pieces of content prepared. Well, I guess we could just have some sort of template that we could churn out. If it's always the same, you know, 
that we could automate that. Well, okay, right. right there. We've just saved the team like two hours of panicked scrambling once a week. And that's huge for them, even though from a developer's perspective, it's like, oh, well, I guess we need, you know, we need to be able to clone these 15 pieces of content once every week. Um, I, I, I always try and bring that up in projects, but, but, you know, sometimes by the time, you know, a dev gets involved, it's too late. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're just adding new features to the, to the already long list rather than helping prioritize where the real pain points are. Right. Exactly. And I mean, um, that's actually one of the reasons why lately I've gotten much more interested in doing, you know, early client engagement work and stuff like that, because you can nip a lot of these problems in the bud and you can, you know, voice the needs of, you know, a technical person very early in the process where a lot of times they get left out. Um, but you can also take a lot of these things that, that I've learned, like, you know, have you talked to your content creation team? Um, you know, what is your, what is your, your content sharing strategy. You know, you can think of all of these pain points that you've encountered over the years and make sure they get considered and taken into account. You know, have you done a, have you done a content audit and these kinds of stuff? Well, we know we've got content, you know, bigger <laughs> than a bread box, smaller than a car, you know, yeah, somewhere, right. it's somewhere in there. It's amazing to me how many times you do an early engagement with a client and you ask them how many page types they have and they'll say, you know, oh, I don't know, like five or 10. And then when they actually do their content audit, it's like they've got this gigantic, like horrible rat's nest tree of all of the like, you know, one off pages and one off API integrations and stuff like that that they had completely forgotten about. You know, it's funny because I think a lot of the attention that um, NPR's cope strategy has gotten, it's not because they're, you know, they're by no means the first news organization to do like APIs for, you know, sharing content and getting it into different places. I saw the San Jose Mercury News setting up a BBS that you could dial into in like, you know, the late <laughs> We're really 80s. aging ourselves now. Oh man. Yeah. Well, it okay, okay. And and then they had a uh they had a keyword on AOL, you know. They, you know, they they, they went through that whole like cycle of things. CompuServe prodigy, you know. But what's what's our online strategy? Should we go with CompuServe or AOL? <laughs> You know, NPR was interesting that they were one of the first high-profile organizations to really take a, a full step back and say, how do we want to pull all of this together, not just build the next one-off piece onto this? Right. I know at the Seattle Times we were starting to get there because one of the things that they had, which was extremely common in the industry back then, is they had a CMS for their print uh, product and they had another one for their website. I mean, that's something you still see very frequently today. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they were just starting to get to the point where the CMS that drove their website was also driving their print product. And on the other side, because I wasn't working on the main newspaper website, I was working more in the uh, lifestyle, arts and entertainment, night, nightlife side of, of things, which was a completely separate website. And we had no integration with the print side at all. So if we wanted to pull their stuff or push our stuff to them, it was a huge pain. Sort of a different CMS for each taxonomy. Yeah, yeah kind of. Um, but, you know, it was also a lack of content strategy from the top. They didn't really envision this world where everything was under its own, uh, was under a single brand and, you know, putting everything together and stuff like that. But, you know, even back then we were starting, just starting to get to the point where we were thinking about, you know, having to use pieces of content in multiple ways. And this was even before mobile. The iPhone, the first iPhone came out while it was at the Seattle Times. 
um, you know, even back then we were starting to have the germs of these discussions, you know, mm -hmm. but, it, but it wasn't really until mobile happened, especially as more and more screen sizes started happening and, you know, responsive and all of this, that this stuff really started to come to fore because it was just impossible to, to track how many, how all of the ways that this was going to be used. And, you know, on a lot of Drupal sites, uh, one of the big, um, discussions has been around content sharing, and I'm sure you've been in dozens of these discussions. Well, because... I, th this is definitely something I th I'm, I'm interested, in, you know, in, in going a little deeper into because, like, content sharing can like mean so many different things. Like, I'm assuming that you're not just meaning like social sharing. I mean, no, no, I mean, like, for instance, uh, what, uh, a gig that I was doing a couple of years ago was for a large um, TV station in Denmark, and they had a lot of. Um, media properties. They actually had several TV stations, like they had their sports site, and they had their news site, and they had, you know, their entertainment site, and all of these things. And um, they were all individual sites, and it was very difficult to share content across the properties. You know, Lance Lance Armstrong admitting that he that he uh, used uh, illegal substances when he was biking. Like that's a sports story, obviously, but it's also a, a real news story. So at, at what point do you, do you write three stories, one for each section in which it's relevant? Do you share them? You know, how, how do you even approach that? Exactly. And you know, uh, do, do we want to share the entire content of the whole story in both of these places? Or do we want to sort of have a teaser on the front page of the news site that leads people to the sports section. And, and th those aren't questions you answer from a technical standpoint. Those are, you know, as a news organization, what do we want? How do we want to approach those kinds of things? How does this serve the goals of our users, right? What are we actually trying to accomplish? And when we started bringing it to that discussion, it was, it was, it started, you know, a lot of these solutions went away and a lot of new solutions came up. And, um, and, and, you know, I always try and make things happen that way. It's like, what goal are we trying to serve and how are we serving it by doing these things? And, you know, in the Drupal world, for instance, there are some very standard uh, ways to approach this. For instance, if you want to share whole pieces of content between uh, sites, you can put together a, uh, a very monolithic uh, dr single Drupal install uh, with modules like domain access and things like this and and uh, flag pieces of content to appear on different sites within those sites chrome and that that approach is basically like having you know all of your sites sort of on one monolithic system where each different brand or sub brand or whatever is basically just like a skinned subsection with its own domain name it's really the same right exactly and you say i want this piece of content to appear on this this and this site. But the downside of that is that you have everything in one monolithic system. It makes it much harder to maintain. Makes it's it the much blessing harder. and the curse. Yes, exactly. It makes it harder to maintain from a technical standpoint. Performance problems are more difficult to address in general. And, you know, something goes wrong, then all of your properties are gone. Well, you, you also worked on a project called uh, Deplo the Deploy Module, which was, one, I think, one of the first really comprehensive attempts inside of the Drupal world to really tackle that kind of problem. It basically allowed you to set up hub sites and sort of receiver sites that could publish that could publish and subscribe content and share them. And that was another way to approach this problem. There are some architectural problems in past versions of Drupal that made that difficult, but that was another one of the um, answers that we talked about, which was content sharing by essentially pushing pieces of content between these sites um, and by you know, running an individual server or whatever server instance or what have you for each site that are that is their own individual self-contained piece of of uh, 
database and code and and uh, you know HTML and whatnot and um, pushing content pieces of content in between them. But the downside that you come from that from a workflow standpoint is keeping all of those pieces of content in sync because they are actually each individual pieces of content at that point. And so if you change one, then how do you make sure that the other ones get updated? If your hub site pushes out version one of an article, four different sites subscribe to it, they tweak it for their, you know, for their audience, and you issue update two with a correction, what happens? Right. That kind of thing is, is the problem that becomes, and you can say as a policy that the that the subscriber sites are never allowed to make changes. But I mean, it's not realistic to expect that to happen in the real world, you know? And so we, me and me and the tech guys were going back and forth, but it was when we really focused, it was when we brought it back to, you know, well, what are we trying to accomplish with content sharing? What do we really want to do mm-hmm. that the, um, that the, the business team said, well, really all we care about is being able to share the fact that an article exists somewhere else between the sites and maybe showing like the headline and a blurb and a, and a, and a thumbnail to point everybody so that we have a central place for the actual article. And all that we're doing is spreading around links to the article, basically, or little blocks to the article. Once that was finally determined, because, you know, they said, oh, we want to be able to share content across all of the websites because everybody walks in wanting that. Right. But once they saw the pros and cons and the sort of the sort of ups and downs of each approach, they said, well, you know, what we really want is this. And so let's take this approach because it meets our needs the best. Sort of one of those things where, you know, like how you describe the problem can lead you into intractable, like core computer science, algorithmic complexity problems. Right. And that was a great example of how having, you know, their existing IT staff and their existing business staff and and their new IT staff, essentially the consultants building the new system um, and their designers, because there was definitely representation from all parts of the business there, getting together and throwing all of their priorities on the table and sorting everything out and coming up with a solution that everyone could accept. That, that's, uh, that's pretty awesome, actually. It I mean, was. It was actually really cool. I mean, I think that's actually an, a very interesting example because it feels like the way a lot of the, the COPE style, I mean, I think they've, they've been out there, but I think, you know, the fact that NPR's example had uh, a really well-defined architecture that they were able to explain and articulate to other people, and it had an acronym, you know, let, let's, <laughs> let's, let's not discount the, the importance of having a catchy acronym. Um, and, you know, COPE. We're coping. Right. It sounds it sounds right for the problem. How do we um, cope with this hell that we've built for ourselves? Exactly. Um, but I, I think one of the most interesting things about it is that from an actual architectural standpoint, it doesn't attempt to solve a lot of those thorny problems. You know, it's basically a, a feed, and you can find things that match certain criteria, and you can get back records for each of the stories that match, and you can say how much of the story you actually want. You know, the one-line micro-teaser. Or you can say, I want everything related to that article. Or you can say, I, I'm actually making a podcast app. All I want is news stories that actually have audio attached to them and a title and a link to the audio feed. And, you know, you can sort of mix and match what you want and pull that in, which means that you've got the flexibility to do things like what you were describing. You know, you know really all we need is a headline and a link and a thumbnail. We can, we can link off to the, other, the story that's hosted on another site. But, you know, it's really interesting because when I look at that, I, I can guarantee you that there is undoubtedly an enormous amount of political uh, wailing <laughs> and hand-wringing behind that. Because one of the things that we encounter all the time at you know media organizations, but also at places you wouldn't suspect it, like universities, for instance, is that 
people in groups um, expect to have an enormous amount of flexibility and control over the content that is displayed in their group and how it's displayed. That's not necessarily always in line with a content strategy or a global vision of how things are going to work for the organization as a whole. It's almost like every department expects to be able to run their own website. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> and one of the failures that you see in a lot of organizations trying to put sites like that is in allowing it, basically, is what it comes down to. Um, what NPR has done there is basically saying, you can grab all of the content that you want but you are grabbing the content, and that's it, basically, right? And you can sort of build any view on that that you want to, but right. this is the content. This is the content, and one of the struggles that we had at this media company that I was telling you about earlier is that if the, if the news uh, division pulled in a piece of content from the sports division, they wanted to be able to put their own angle on it, right? They wanted to be able to change it so that, you know, it had more of a news angle than a sports angle. And they may want to choose a different photo for it and things like this. And, you know, once you break that link between the original piece of content, you're basically forking it. You've got two pieces of content at that point. Yep. And that's where that update problem comes, right? And so what NPR is saying is that you can use this content, but, but it's our content. It's everyone's content. It is yeah. us as an organization presenting it as a singular thing. And that's actually shockingly difficult in a lot of these organizations. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think this is a pattern that, you know, we, we end up seeing in a number of media organizations that we work with. You know, when they go digital, a lot of those organizations, basically, you know, the first sort of immediate step was, okay, we'll put up a blog for each one of our columnists. That quickly evolved into, you know, the successful ones began to have their own tailored online presence and now the effort of trying to say okay well how do we unite these how do we bring them together it's trying to figure out how how we pull together these disparate entities these disparate networks that have started to form and i i think that question of like okay a, a, a hot news story comes out who covers it and how mm -hmm. and you know do we consider them different views of the same story are they different stories that are related to each other there's no correct answer to that on a technical level it's about an organization and how it wants to approach the question of i would say there's no I, you're correct there's no correct answer from a technical level but there is a correct question to be asked when those things are come to you and the question is what is best for the organization a lot of these questions that you're talking about and that i'm talking about come from people saying what is best for me um and you know i mean you know this is politics and we deal with it all the time at big organizations but it's really surprising how many times people you know, sort of lose that big picture. And a classic, a classic example of that that I saw at the Seattle Times was when their their online classifieds people who were separate from their print classifieds people oh dear. wanted to start making online classifieds free. Um, with with you know add-ons for extra pictures and bolding and stuff like this, you know. And the print classified people you know, raised a fit. They went crazy because they were saying that the online classifieds were going to cannibalize their business. Well, they're, they're, they're correct, but sort of my response to that was, well, we can cannibalize our own business or Craigslist can cannibalize all of our business, right? <laughs> and I personally would rather see the organization live, you know, um, than let Craigslist take all of our business. And the company should be open about what's going on with their employees so there's not fear and gossiping and stuff. And, it, you know, it's interesting because I've said for, I mean, since my first consulting gigs in 1993, you know, that half the time when you go in as a software consultant, you end up doing business consulting. <laughs> yes.
and, and, you know, just helping people figure out these business problems that they didn't even realize necessarily were problems, right? So I'm curious. I, I think we're, we're just about finished up, but you, you've talked a lot about the, the need to, you know, bring these conversations up to the surface and get, you know, get different players at the table. Do you have any useful advice for people who are, who are in the thick of it and trying to do that? You know, how, how, how do you get these disparate players at the table and listening to each other other than like, you know, get a copy of, you know, Machiavelli's The Prince and, and commit it to heart. <laughs> oh man, that is not the advice I would give to people. Um, <laughs> I mean, and you know, part of the problem is that, is that once you get into the thick of it, it's very hard to get out of the thick of it because once, once you're in the thick and you're really building, it's like a lot of these problems are intractable without pulling back and facing the prospect of tearing everything apart. And, you know, for a dev, for an individual dev who gets handed a project, by that point, there's very little that they can do. But I mean, what I would say to people who are starting projects is just, is just what we've been talking about here, to get everybody at the table as early as possible, to make sure that you're clear about what the goals of a project are, to make sure that everything you do works towards those goals. You know, we talked about the content sharing question, which is always a very big deal to put up, to bring up very early in a project because it affects all sorts of architectural decisions about how your content types are put together and even as much as how your servers are built and what kind of hardware you get and that kind of thing, right? But um, other questions that are really important to be um, put together early on is um, how, do you want, how do you want to list your content? What kind of listings do you want to have? What kind of data will be in the listings? How are those listings generated? Are they going to be generated by hand and curated, or are they going to be automated, right? That's, that's actually a really concrete example of something that comes up all the time, too, because everybody, of course, wants all of their listings to be completely curated because they want to have exactly the content up there that they but want. But they also want it to be completely automatic because they don't have time to curate it. Right, and that's exactly – I've never been on a project that started with all curated listings that ended with all curated listings. Or vice versa. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's the kind of thing where if you if you can get that conversation started early on, it can save you a lot of time at the end redoing a lot of that work. You know, different types of listings may rely on metadata that it doesn't um, that it doesn't occur to you to gather. Um, getting that out to the forefront can can interact with all sorts of things like you know editorial workflow and taxonomy and navigation and all sorts of things. You no, know. I, I think those are great examples of how like that, you know, design and development and, you know, editorial all have to inform each other as, as, you know, as a project evolves. Oh yeah, absolutely. The more that happens earlier, the more efficient everything's going to be down the end. But I mean, you know, to be fair, nobody ever has all of the answers up front. And I think that once a lot of time has been invested, I think people are really scared about, you know, um, having to tear things apart. And, and in a lot of projects that I've seen, and, you know, to some extent, this just comes from the nature of consulting relationships because they tend to be tied to budgets and, and schedules and things like this. And so, you know, if something's built and doesn't seem to really fit everybody's needs, there, was, there tends to be a, 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 a sort of attitude of, oh, we'll just live with it. But, you know, I really, I really try and encourage people to try and look at those things when they happen and, you know, not be afraid to, to kind of tear everything apart and start over when they have to, right? And, you know, this all goes into like agile and priority and all of that kind of stuff. But everybody wants to plan as much up front, but also admit that, you know, nobody ever has all the answers up front. And we shouldn't be afraid to, uh, to, to kind of tear something apart a little and rebuild it if we have to in order to gain, you know, more efficiencies or 
better service down the road because because you know you know we're just we're just people we don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm.